All right, good morning, everybody. Um, if you don't know me, it's probably because we haven't been here in a while. Uh, my name is Darren Slater. Uh, we were, I was an elder here a couple years ago, uh, preached here pretty regularly, and then our family was called on a uh, mission to help uh, revitalize the church. Uh, that adventure ended, and now we're back. And so it's a pleasure to be here in front of you this morning to be able to bring the Word of God to you. So if you would, very first thing before we get started, let's everybody go ahead and get our Bibles out and go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 10. Um, if, you have a, if you don't have a Bible of your own, um, that is no problem. There are actually Bibles at the end of your rows. Feel free to grab one of those. You're welcome to keep it as our gift to you if you would like to keep it. Um, it that is on page 938. So if you turn to there, you'll be right where we need to be at. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Um, and, and so as, we're, as you're turning there and as you're kind of maybe taking a quick glance at what the topic is in the scripture and things like that, um, let me explain kind of a little bit of what we're doing, especially if this is your first Sunday with us. Um, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, and so that's what you're seeing the bumper video for. Um, and, and we're using that book. We're not preaching through the book so much as we're using it as a, as a launching point to say, Genesis Church, what, what do we need to talk about on these topics? What, what do we need to address? What's true? What's false? So on and so forth. We're addressing these topics and using them as a way to just look at each other and say, how can we preach the gospel better, right? And that's what we're doing. And so uh, when I uh, told Mike what was going on and we were coming back, Mike was like, hey, here's a list of topics. Choose one. And this, this topic this morning, is Christianity, is Christianity homophobic, immediately was like, yeah, let's do that one. And, and, and gentlemen who are also preaching, like, you guys know this is not the topic anybody just wants to grab. Because, man, it's tough. It's, this is a tough topic to preach on. So are all the rest of them. But this one in particular for me is personal. Uh, for those of you who were uh, 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 familiar with our family back uh, right before COVID happened, know that I took a 23andMe test. I found my biological family. Really cool story. But the whole, this whole story, this whole sermon for, the, for me hinges right here because I literally had family members that I found that were hesitant to introduce me to other parts of my family because they found out I was a preacher. They found out I was an elder at a church, and they thought, well, wait, I, we, we need to ask some questions first. We need to kind of drill down into this. Are you one of those Christians? Are you one, are, are you one of those hateful people that's going to, like, you know, push us away and, and not like us and all this other stuff? And, you know, come to find out, never was an issue, never had a problem with anybody in the family. In fact, my father um, was that person. And uh, you can go and read our email history. He admitted that straight up. He's, that's the reason why he didn't know I even existed. And it's like, so, so what do we do? Do we push him away because of that, or do we accept him? And we've accepted him. He's our family. He's, he's my dad. He's, he's uh, the grandfather to my children, along with their other grandpa who lives in Oklahoma. It's amazing. We've had an amazing experience through that. But it was just a shock to have someone look at us and go, I don't know about that. Yeah, maybe we need to do some vetting first to find out if you're one of those type of people. So that's why this is personal for me. Um, uh, is Christianity homophobic? Uh, listen, we're gonna, I'm going to spoil the sermon right here, y'all. The Bible has something to say about this topic. It absolutely does. And to uh, uh, get away from that is to be unfaithful to Scripture. So the church has to come down on an answer of, is, homo, is, is homosexuality, and, and let's lump a bunch of other things in there, transgenderism and a bunch of other topics, all those things kind of lumped in together, are they biblical? Are they something that should be promoted and, and something that should be accepted as normal? Those types of things. And the Bible has an answer for that. And we have to dig down into Scripture and figure out what that is if we're going to be faithful Christians. We have to. If nothing else, because the culture around us is screaming at us, get on the right side of history on this topic. They're telling us, you're a Christian, you're probably wrong on this immediately. Because it goes against what we want, just straight up. So three questions today we're going to hit is this. Number one, is it true? Is Christianity homophobic? So we're going to hit that right off the bat. What does that mean? Are we guilty of that? Secondly, how, can, how has and how, how can the church mess up on this topic? And then third is, what is the way forward as the church, as Genesis, and those who claim to be homosexual, those who identify in, as that? Like, what's our way forward? Before I jump into the next kind of set of things we're going to do, can I pray and just let's, let's, let's ask God to open up his word to us so we can understand it? Because as I can stand up here and talk for an hour and a half, two hours, I'm not going to do that. 
But if God doesn't bless his word in our hearing of it, we've wasted our time. So let's ask him to intervene and to help us understand what he's telling us, okay? Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we are, we are hitting what your scripture says, and we're going to hit it the way you've preached it to us, through scripture, through your apostles, through Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would open up your word to us. Let it ring anew in our ears. Let it make sense to our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability to understand it well. And then more importantly, Lord, from that, give us understanding that leads to obedience to what you've told us to do. We are to be hearers of the word and doers also. So Lord, help us to do that. Give us your grace this morning as we jump into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying with me. Um, so let's define some top. Let's define some words real quick. Before we just jump right in, man, we have to define what this is. So if you look at the screen, right, it says homophobic. What in the world does that word mean? Well, you break the word down. Homo the, is, the, is the, the very first part. The second part is phobic. We can define what the word homo means later. But phobic, I think most of us already have an idea what that means. Most of you have heard of phobia, right? Just a, a fear of. So I thought... What's, what a better way to trigger everybody than to maybe put your phobia on screen. So let's do that right now. I'm going to put some uh, uh, pho- common phobias on screen, and we're going to go through them. And I want you to see if you can tell me what they are real quick. Go ahead and hit the first one. All right. Arachnophobia is? Man, I tell you right now, if, seeing a, like, like, Mike was telling me this is his son, and he, and he caught this picture of this spider on a disc golf course. Burn the disc golf course down, man. It's done. See ya. Out. I'm out. And that's, that's probably not that big, but if you've seen the ones in the Amazon, I don't, Dave, I don't want to go to the mission trip in the Amazon, man. I'm out. Like, I'm going to stay up there in Kayombe, dude. All right, next slide. Um, nomophobia, fear of being without your phone. Some of y'all have this on a morning by morning basis of you're like checking the pockets, you're looking around, where's my phone at? I don't know where it's at. What am I going to do? Nomophobia. I bet some of y'all have that. The next one, Koinonephobia, it's fear of rooms, but I'm going to call y'all out. I think it's the fear of Genesis' online community. Some of y'all are, yeah, yeah, if you're not in there, you need to be in there. It's kind of how we do information at Genesis Church. So get in there. Koinonephobia, fight your phobias, y'all. All right, the next one, agoraphobia. Most of you have heard of that one, right? Crowds. Man, you get amongst a bunch of people. You go to a cardinal game or something, and you're just kind of crowded in. And you just feel like you need to curl up into a ball and just disappear. Like, that's real, man. Uh, the next one, arithmophobia. Fear of numbers. Some of y'all just have this for math class in general, right? Amen. Like, I, when I got done with math class, my last one in college, I said, never again. Never again. Never again. All right. Um, autophobia. This one's real, man. Fear of being alone. It's the opposite of agoraphobia, right? It's like... The crowds are welcome. I don't want to be by myself. Like, like, I need the nightlight on at night, y'all. Like, that type of thing, right? Trypanophobia. Bet some of y'all have this one. Fear of needles, fear of injections. Very common phobia. Someone comes at you with that, with that, with that poker at the doctor's office. You're like, nah, I'm out. Stay away from me, right? Uh, this next one may trigger some of y'all. I'm just warning you. Cholerophobia. Clowns. Again, circuses. Ban them. Out. Get rid of them, right? Uh, glossophobia. You don't want to be doing what I'm doing right now, right? You're out. No speaking in public. You don't want to have anything to do with it. The most common phobia, by the way. Most identified phobia. People do not want to speak in public. Um, this is my favorite one. Hippopotamonstrosesquipedaliophobia. Fear of long words. You can't, the doctor can't even diagnose you without you being triggered. It's hilarious, right? All right, and then the last one, phobophobia, fear of phobias. So if you have this one, this whole list has triggered you. You're out. You're totally out. So, so look, I, I, we had to start light because we're going to get real serious now, right? Phobia. What does phobia mean? Phobia just is, 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 means fear, fear of. So, so, so when we talk about the subject this morning of is Christianity homophobic, does that, does that just simply mean are Christians afraid of people who identify as being homosexual, those who are LGBT? Do we fear them? Are we afraid of them? And I think most of you would raise your hand and say, that makes no sense to me. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of a person. I'm not afraid of a group of people. It's not like that. But and see, that's, that's the thing. We have to define this because our culture has, ide- has identified this and defined this as something different than just what the root words would tell you. Okay? 
And so uh, pu- I pulled up Planned Parenthood. They sort of, rec- they sort of uh, 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 define things pretty well, on, on especially this side of, of, uh, uh, of being pro-homosexual and things like that. And so I thought that's going to be a good definition, and it was. So their definition is this. So just li- it's not going to be on the screen. Just listen to me. It's homophobia can take many different forms, including negative attitudes and beliefs about aversion to or prejudice against bisexual, lesbian, and gay people. It's often based in irrational fear and misunderstanding. Some people's homophobia may be rooted in conservative religious beliefs. People may hold homophobic beliefs if they were taught them by parents and families. Now, now see where that definition turned, right? It's no longer just fear of, it's misunderstanding of, rejection of, uh, it, it is, uh, you, you do not support, you, you are unable to support them. So, so, so this term has been expanded and stretched to something that we have to take, a, take account of. So, so when we say are, we say, are we homophobic, is Christianity homophobic? Now we have to change our definition to say, do we support? Are we in support of? Or are we against? It's pretty much that simple. And we have an answer for that. So, so here's my suggestion for this. Before we even get started, this is a missional sermon, meaning that I'm not just preaching to this to you guys to make you feel good. I want you to be able to take this sermon and then go have a conversation with the person at work that, that is, identifies as homosexual and be able to have a rational, good conversation with them and hopefully be able to present the gospel to them, right? That's the whole point. So before we even get started, if you start to sit down and have a conversation with someone about this, and they begin to say Christians are homophobic, the first thing you should do is say, what do you mean by that? Like, like can you explain what you mean by homophobic? Because you're going to immediately be able to begin to see that what we say about that and what they say about that can be con- completely contradicting, con- contradicting terms. They could be completely opposites of what you think you're saying. So be real clear about your language and what you're saying. So most people, in my opinion, and, and based on that definition, what they mean by Christians are homophobic, is do you support, approve of, and tolerate the LGBT lifestyle? That's what they mean to say. They don't mean fear. They mean do you accept? Do, are you promoting? Are you an ally? That type of thing. And so listen, Christians do have a position on this that's elaborated in Scripture. Um, and if we believe that Scripture is God's word, then we are obliged to take that position. So what is that position? Before I even say what our position is, I got to tell you real quick, this is very relevant too. So we had to have a, we, we had a, uh, a camp uh, sermon on, on, on uh, the apostle Paul and why people are getting rid of Paul. Um, it was based on second Peter chapter three, where Peter recognizes Paul's words as scripture. And there's a reason why people don't like Paul. It's because Paul talks about this subject. They want to get rid of these subjects. And there's a reason for that. It's because this is a cultural thing. This is a cultural phenomenon. Go ahead and put that slide up for me there. Um, this is a, a graph that I saw produced not too long ago uh, that I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I got to show you all this in the sermon because I want you to notice the numbers that's being shown here. Um, between 2012 and 2021, we have this uh, uh, graph showing uh, the amount of people who have came out, who, have, who are now identifying as LGBT. The bottom row there is your boomer slash traditionalist uh, generation. And then above that, in green, is your Gen Xers. Uh, uh, the uh, red is the millennial. Is, no, I'm sorry. The red dotted line is, is Gen X. The blue line is millennials. And then Gen Z, the current generation, is green. Now, something tells me that something is happening to our culture when our, th- these numbers are so stark and different just between years, depending on what generation you're a part of, and I'm going to say depending on how much social media you had access to. Because if you are a, uh, G- a Gen Zer, meaning you are under the age of 25, give or take, one in five people identify now as LGBT versus if you are uh, a Gen Xer, uh, you know, born in the 70s, lived through the 80s, that type of thing, only 4%. What's the difference? What's happening? And it's just this, y'all. When things become more accepted, when things are becoming more promoted, 
especially this lifestyle, and it's seen as good and wholesome and, and lovely, people buy into it. People like that. And so parents, this is relevant for you because that means that if we have 30 kids here, how many of those right now would say they're struggling with or identifying as LGBT, and what are you going to tell them about Christian beliefs? We had 60 kids at camp, one in five. 60 divided by five is what? Help me with math. I hate math. Nomophobia, right? What, 12? That means 12 out of that 60, according, at least statistically, would identify with or would say they're struggling with LGBT beliefs. You've got to have an answer, family. You have to. You have no choice because it's in your face. And the culture is in your face. And your kids need to know where the Bible stands on this topic. So with that said, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10 with me. Go ahead and look down. If you've already perused this, you may be shocked at what we're about to read because it has nothing to do with homosexuality. Or does it? Because Mark chapter 10 is Jesus talking about divorce and marriage. And so here's why we're going to read this. I'm going to spoil the sermon for you. Many Christians will run to the gotcha verses for talking about homosexuality. And we'll hit one of those here in a little bit in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, so on and so forth. There's plenty of places in Scripture where homosexuality is pointed out as not good, as sinful. But that's not where we're going this morning. I want to I preach to you the positive case that Jesus makes in his sermon to the people he's preaching to that says what he thinks is good and right and wholesome and holy and what we need to follow. The pattern that Jesus says is what we should be following, okay? So let's read it together, and I want to point out some things to you, and then we're going to jump into the rest of the sermon from there. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and, the, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you in this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, again, you may be like, wait, what, is, what does that have to do with this topic? Well, let's run through it, right? What case is Jesus making here? What does Jesus exclude here by not talking about? What he doesn't say is just as important as what he does say. So when, when these uh, when the Pharisees and the other people that are, he's, that are around him asking him questions, and he begins to teach, he begins to tell them about what is the standard by which God made the world. And he quotes Genesis chapter 1, where he says, Have you not heard God made them male and female? And he quotes from the very beginning of Scripture. Very beginning. When God's creating the earth, he makes the sky, the birds, the planets, the stars— Makes everything, right? And then God creates his crowning creation, man. Those made in his image. Amazing, right? But he, and he makes them male and female. In his image, he made them. Beautiful text. And so then Jesus quotes all that in here. And he says, listen, when we're talking about divorce, when we're talking about the standard of what God expects, you guys divorcing just sort of random willy-nilly because she burnt your toast or whatever may have happened, that's not what Moses intended. He meant for this pattern to happen. So let's read it again. Go ahead and look at verse 5 with me again. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. From the beginning of creation, God made them failing, uh, male and female. Let's stop right there, right? Immediately, Jesus references the binary of sexes. Not infinite genders, not infinite gender identities. He says there's two. There's male and female. God created them that way. So there we, now we have to take a stance on the, the very current topic of gender identity, right? God made them male and female. And unless we are the, of the belief that God can make mistakes, in church, I'm going to spoil that for you too. I don't think I'm in that camp, right? 
God doesn't make mistakes. He's not fallible. He does not make mistakes. He does not sin, right? If God didn't make mistakes, then that means he was right. When he made you male, he made you male for a purpose. When he made you female, he made you female for a purpose. And that's not to change or be confused or in any other way, right? You were created that way. So male and female. And then next, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Marriage. Immediately, Jesus defines what marriage is. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, right? Immediately, it sets the pattern. That's what marriage is. It's, and, and he doesn't give room, even amongst a bunch of people who were divorcing left and right, even amongst a, a people that's had a history of polygamy. He doesn't say that's an option here. He says a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. One man, one woman, marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. He then promotes the beauty and the amazingness of heterosexual sex between the man and wife as the seal that makes that marriage complete. Right? He, he's talking about this full package of things that this is what they're supposed to be doing. Married together, having sex together. They are now one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, this is supposed to be for one lifetime. Just like we say in our marriage ceremonies, right? Till death do you part. That's the intention. Of course we've messed that up. They were messing that up. That's why Jesus is giving this instruction. Because again, they've abused the law. They've said, we can divorce for any reason we want. And so here's the deal. Jesus gives this, this explanation of marriage. The two shall become one flesh. They will, they will join together. Let not them be separated. Man, this was his chance, y'all. Pay attention to me. This was his chance. Jesus could have affirmed anything here. He's teaching on marriage. He could have said two men together, two women together, 18 people together, forming one whole polyamorous unit. Whatever they want to say, he could have said anything here and affirmed and said all that is good. But Jesus here and in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke and in John and throughout the rest of Scripture does not do that. Why? Because God's good pattern is the pattern that he set in creation, which is man and woman married for one lifetime, procreating, uh, reproducing, all those things. That's God's good intent. That's what God has done for us. So to deviate from that would be sinful. And that's what we're going to start with, right? To deviate from the good pattern God has said, to advocate for the opposite of what God has called good, we've already missed the mark. We've sinned at that point. So by Jesus not including here all the different options and opportunities, which were, by the way, practiced regularly in Roman culture, Jesus by exclusion says no other thing than this is good. That's the positive case for Christian, our, our beliefs on marriage and why we would say that we have a position on homosexuality. The reason we would say it's wrong is not because we want to beat you up. We're going to say it's wrong because Jesus never says it's good. And what God does not call good, we would call sin. But let's just be honest. That's not the only place that that happens. There's many other places in scripture where God condemns homosexual activity in the book of Leviticus. Uh, later on, the apostle Paul will write about it in, in the book of Romans, in the book of 1 Timothy, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he will say these things are sinful, that they, will, that they are sin. That these people who practice this and many other sins will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. We can't ignore that. But before we hit those topics and begin to explain some of those, you have to understand how the church has messed this up. Because my gosh, have we. How have we messed this up? We have messed this up. And I'm going to couch the two ways we've messed this up into two theological terms for you to take home and do more research on. I want to give you this as a gift from me to you, right? So take these terms home and, and go crazy on them and figure out what all they mean and how they're applied in Christianity. The first one is this. We can mess up by being hypernomian hypernomian. What does that mean? That means we can be so hyper elevated about the law. Nomos means law, the law of God. Hypernomianism means we are all about the law, y'all. 
Like, we are going to enforce everything. We are going to be sticklers about everything. And not in a godly way. That's why hyper is there. We are nomians. We do believe God's law is true and it's good. But it's the hyper part is the problem. And how has the church done that? Um, There there is a uh, story uh, within my family of a person who had to leave a state because they were afraid for their life because they were out. And that's true, man. In, in Oklahoma and other places in the 80s, it was rough. People being lynched. The AIDS crisis was huge. In fact, the, the whole AIDS epidemic was called the homosexual virus because it was just pinned on those who were practicing. And I dare you to go Google, and let's pick on our camp for a moment, Southern Baptists, who we, who we are associated with, right? Go and Google Southern Baptist AIDS crisis and see if you can find a positive story, story for me on something that... Has, was good that happened in the 80s and early 90s for that. I couldn't find anything. I didn't get, enough in, I didn't get into Google far enough, apparently, but there's just not any. And, and that's not just told by Google. That's also anecdotal from my family where people had to literally leave because Christians and others were so about getting those homosexuals out of here and things like that. To the point that the church ostracized those with AIDS and other diseases like that. They ostracized the people who were struggling with their homosexuality. They pushed them out. They said, we don't want you here anymore. To the point that maybe you all are familiar with people like Westboro Baptist Church, who became famous for protesting uh, fallen soldiers' funerals, uh, holding signs that in part in the language, but they said it, God hates fags. That's terrible, y'all, because that's not true. A couple of years ago at, at East Central College, uh, the, the college was doing a, uh, um, a play that was based on a story of a young man who committed suicide. Or, no, I'm sorry. He was lynched for being uh, homosexual. It was a whole play that they were doing in the theater department. And Westboro Baptist threatened. They never showed up, but they threatened to come and protest. The day that they were there, the whole college, I mean, and I mean the whole college was outside ready to protest the protesters. Christians included. I was out there because them coming in preaching hatred toward people struggling with this is not Christianity because we're not here to hate people. We're here to love them and preach the gospel to them, right? So we showed up. I showed up holding a sign saying something to the effect of what you believe isn't Christianity. Ask me my beliefs. And sure enough, me and another guy named Kevin got to have a tremendous conversation with about eight different people just on this topic, explaining to them, listen, this is not, what they're saying is not true, but it doesn't mean that we affirm this is good. It just means that we're not going to come out here preaching hatred towards you. But that's what the church has been guilty of. Westboro Baptist is famous for it. I would say that Christianity in general is infamous for it because this is the stance that we've taken and, and the way that we see this happen, I think, in many ways is because we will treat it as yucky. And I use that term in, in air quotes. We'll treat homosexuality and other sins like that as yucky. But we will not point out our own sins. And I'll point out where that comes from here in a minute when we get to 1 Corinthians. But, y'all, we're, we're, the, our churches are guilty of many things, especially what Jesus preached on divorce. The, the conservative evangelical uh, divorce rate is just as high as the culture, y'all. It's over 50%. Why? It's because we've lost the mark, too. We failed in our obligations to God's word, just as everyone else has. Adultery? Man, we've promoted adultery like crazy in the Christian church without even trying to. Lust? Sure, we've let it go. Pornography? It's not nearly talked about as much as it should be. The church is, we're, we're guilty of many of sins like that. Lying, cheating, stealing, gluttony, you name it. We're guilty, of, we're guilty of it, but we'll look at their sin and call it yucky. You see the problem with that? We've forgotten that all sin is yucky in God's eyes. And therefore, our sin should be yucky in our eyes. But that's what we do. And then, of course, we have the, the, the last part of this, which is thinking that we can uh, send people to a camp and pray over them for seven days straight and think that's going to solve the problem. That, as they say, pray the gay away, right? You've got, you probably have all heard that before. And there's extreme examples of that, my gosh, of people being locked in rooms for, for days at a time, barely fed or given water, 
and the church thinking that's going to, by holding them hostage, change their inner nature. It's not the answer. It's not the answer at all. So we can be hypernomian. We can be so against the sin that we then become sinful ourselves in, time, in trying to get rid of it or trying to fix it, whatever that may be. The other one is antinomian. Antinomian. That just means against the law, no law. What does that mean? That means we can capitulate. We can be like many of the mainline liberal denominations of churches, uh, many of the churches you see out there who are now flying the uh, pride flag outside their church without any hindrance or objection or any, any reasons why they can't. Because they have said, no, this is a good thing. Love who you want to love. Do what you want to do. Live your truth, man. Do your thing. Love is love. We're going to love you no matter what. No matter what's going on, we're going to support you and love you no matter what you do. We can, just so, we can be so blasé about God's law that we can say, let's throw Paul out. Since Paul talked about homosexuality, nah, get rid of Paul's books. We don't need him. He's just a, he's just a guy. I want to believe what I want to believe. I'll take Jesus. He's cool, but get rid of Paul. And there's a problem with that, right? Get rid of Paul. We got to get rid of all of it. But see the point, we can become antinomian. We can just say, listen, I don't like the, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> I, I, I don't like the direction we're headed. Nah, we're going to, we're going to stay with what we want and, and we're going to support you. No matter what you're doing, we're going to bless it and say it's good because we want to love you. And they've forgotten the gospel. They've forgotten that we don't promote sin. We tell people about their sins so that we can say, you need a savior. You need to be saved from your sin. Because without sin, what do you need a savior for? That makes no sense. Why preach the gospel, the good news that Christ came and died and rose from the dead for sinners, if there are no sinners? So that's where we can mess up. We can go either direction. We can become so hardcore that we can begin to push out our mission field and get rid of them. Or we can just say, there is no mission field, everybody's good. Bring them all in. Let's do it. We cannot go in either extreme direction. So what is our way forward? What is the way forward for the church and for those who claim to be, who, those who identify as homosexual, LGBT, any of those things? Four points here, and then my simple sermon will be done. The first thing is this. We preach the truth, church. We preach the truth. Go ahead and uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is going to be on the screen. If you want to turn there in your Bible, you're more than welcome to. This is one of the famous gotcha verses that people will use in a conversation about homosexuality. Let's read it together, and then let's see what it says to us about this topic, right? First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's stop right there. Now, can I tell you all real quick, Paul condemned all of us right there in a couple of words. You can find your sin on that list. Amen? Amen. It's there somewhere. Either you're a liar, you're a cheat, you've disobeyed your parents, you've broken one of the Ten Commandments, you're all guilty. You're guilty. And if I ended my sermon right there, we all go home sad. But I'm not going to do that, right? Intermingled amongst this is many different different sins, sexual immorality, those who look at pornography, those who are addicted to that, those who are trapped in that, those who uh, uh, commit adultery, those who lust after other people. And Jesus said just committing lust, is, uh, just looking at someone else that way is committing adultery. So we're all guilty there no matter what. Adulterers, idolaters, do you have anything in your life that is more important to you than God? Idolater, that's what you are adulterer. And then he says, men who practice homosexuality. Now, here's what'll happen. Here's what'll happen. Those who are the antinomians will take that couple of words and will throw it out and say, ah, that was for that time. Listen, that, that, was, that was the wrong side of history. Paul didn't know what he's talking about. This was just for the Corinthian church. He was struggling with this as, as a part of worship. Yeah, you better be careful because here's the deal. If I throw that one out, I've got to throw the rest out. I've got to throw them all out. Because why is that one wrong and the other ones are, are still good? 
Why is one a sin and not the other sin? Because then I could come back and say, well, yeah, idolatry. I can be a Hindu. I can worship a billion other gods and still worship Jesus. I'm going to keep that one for myself. Paul was on the wrong side of history on that one too, right? See the problem? I can't just get rid of one. I've got to have them all. Because if I get rid of one, why can't I get rid of the others? And then now we're in trouble because now people's real morality is coming into check. But again, that's not the end. When we preach this, many people will stop at that verse and they'll forget to read the next part. They'll condemn the homosexual and they'll forget to read them the hope, right? What's verse 11 say? And such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. You see that? What does Paul say? Paul says, I, I fully recognize that there are many of you here who are struggling with all these different sins. That's not who you are. You have been bought and washed and cleaned and made right by Jesus. You were that, but now you're something different. You no longer identify as those things. You now identify as Christ's, period. That's who you are. You have a new identity That is the hope of the gospel, is it not? That Christ comes, he saves us, he transforms us from who we were to who we will become. That he takes our sins and buries them as far deep as they can go and we no longer bear them anymore. That's the gospel. And he's saying those who accept the gospel, there's no more more, uh, of this account toward you. You are no longer those things. You see, this verse is not condemning the homosexual. It is telling them there's hope. Yes, they will be condemned if they remain in their sins. And so will you. And so will I. But such were some of you. And here's the deal. This issue comes down to our world. It is not an issue of whether or not we are for or against them. We're for them coming to Christ to be their savior. That's what we're for. But for our world, it comes down to their unbelief and the fact that they are enslaved and trapped in sin. Period. And so we can't combat that with praying it away and doing all these other things. We have to confront it with the gospel. The only way the inner nature of someone changes is if we confront them with the gospel, the good news of Christ and what he's done for us. So that brings us to number two is is before we can do that, we've got to love our neighbor, right? We cannot be the hypernomian person who pushes people away that have sins that we don't like. We have to be the people who look at the world around us and see that they are trapped in sin no matter whether it's homosexuality or any other sin that you can name. A couple of weeks ago, I, I, I prayed about those who are doing prison ministry. Talk about people trapped in sin, drug abuse, gang, gang activity, everything you can think of. There's no difference between them and the casual person who's a practicing homosexual on the street. They're all trapped in their sin, just as us who are uh, at home, looking at our computers, doing things we shouldn't be doing, that type of thing, we are trapped in the same sin without Christ. Trapped. And so therefore, there is no way out when you're, tra- when you're enslaved to sin. It's slavery, the slavery is permanent, y'all, until Christ comes and does something about it. He has to free us from that. Um, one of the books that I read for this, and it's a book that I've read a couple times, and I believe we even promoted it a, a, quite a bit when it was released, is uh, uh, Jackie Hill Perry's book, uh, good, uh, Gay Girl, Good God. Um, I got two quotes from her this morning that really dive into this. This is the first one. She says in her book, um, unbelief doesn't see God as the ultimate good. So it can't see sin as the ultimate evil. It instead sees sin as a good thing and thus God's commands as a stumbling block to joy. Let's stop right there for just a second. Understand that when you're talking to someone who's embroiled in, who identifies as LGBT, they, they, they don't feel like what they're doing is wrong. And why should they? They're, they're, the opposite of God is the love of sin. It's, it's the, the, and being trapped in it and loving it. And that's what Jackie Hill Perry, who was a former lesbian, is saying. She was saying when she was there, when she was in that life, that's how she felt. She could not see that there was a good to the other side because it felt like we were killing what they thought was good, right? Their joy was being taken away. Their identity was being snatched from them. She says, in believing the devil, I didn't need a pentagram pendant to wear. Neither did I need a, uh, to memorize a hex or two. 
All I had to do was trust myself more than God's word. I had to believe that my thoughts, my affections, my rights, my wishes were worthy of absolute obedience. And that in laying prostrate before the flimsy throne I'd made for myself, that I'd be doing a good thing. Listen, this is the heart of those around us, y'all. The truth is, the absolute truth is, is they may know better, but their sin nature is holding them tight. So we have to preach the gospel to them. There's no place in Christ's church where we aren't loving toward those trapped in sin. They're enslaved to it. As we learned at camp, and as, as uh, uh, Eric so boldly put it last week, sinner's going to sin. It's absolutely true. No matter what the sin struggle is, we as his church must reach out toward those who aren't like us. We have to. Because they're not going to come on their own. There must be someone who goes and preaches. And if we're unwilling to do that because we don't love them, we're the ones who are wrong, right? We can't expect people to just come to us looking for answers. We've got to go to them. However, this is the other part of this too. Loving them does not mean that we automatically approve of whatever they're doing. We can't. We cannot then turn and become antinomian. No, God's law is clear. God's law says if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. We have to stand on that. We have to believe that because that is what God's word says. So we do not go in with love saying we approve of you. We go in and say God can rescue you. That's what we go in saying. Next is this, especially if you are struggling with sin in your own life. If this, is a, if this is a topic that is hitting you, yourself, deeply in particular, you have to understand that God is worthy. So if you're struggling with this, any sexual sin, gender confusion, whatever it may be, you have to understand that you're being called to something different, just like I, a heterosexual with raging hormones, am being called to something different. Heterosexuality is not the gospel. Well, I'm not going to stand up here and say that for gay people, if they would just turn straight, that's, the, that's, that's not the solution, y'all. No, there has to be something better than that. There has to be something greater than that. And the greater than that is God's worthiness. God is worth sacrificing yourself to follow him and to doing what he has asked. We are all called the same. We're not being guilted into this. God is calling us, find me worthy instead. Find me better than this. So Jackie O'Perry again talks about this as part of her transformation. She says, he is so much greater than the greatest thing and much more glorious than the most glorious glory that eyes could see. Knowing this, he becomes the aim of all of our doing. Because if God is bigger than we can imagine, we are wasting our time to chase after something or someone lesser than him. And because we know that he is our all in all, all in all, our temptations, our trials, and our victories, we must place our ultimate identity not in who we are, but in who we know God to be. And that is, what he, that is exactly what she's saying is exactly what I'm saying. God is worthy for us to abandon what we want and go after him. In fact, Romans chapter 12, um, as uh, again, Paul has laid out a whole journey for you in the book of Romans. Even in chapter 1, he says, listen, part of the curse of sin is the fact that uh, God has abandoned us to our animalistic instincts. And women will chase after women, and men will chase after men. And that's one of those verses that people use as a gotcha, right? It's true. That's what, that's what the scripture says. You can't get around that. But then we get to verse 12, and here's the, here's the, the beauty of it, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, listen. We know, I know, that if you are struggling with this, that this is real. It's not fake. It's not something you can just battle away like it's nothing. We get that. We know that. And if you have not trusted in Christ to be your savior, you are hopelessly fighting against sin that you'll never defeat on your own. You can't do it. That's just, that, that, that is, again, that doesn't just apply to those who are in homosexuality or LGBT. This applies to all of us, whatever your sin struggle may be, period. If you have not submitted to Christ, if you have not bowed your knee to him, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, and you will continue to struggle against it from now until you die, 100%. You'll struggle, and you'll continue to struggle, 
and you'll continue to struggle without victory. But Romans 12 then tells us that if you are in Christ, if you are his, what you are to do, because he's worthy, because God is amazing, because he saved you, because he's chosen you, because he's bought you, present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice. In other words, lay yourselves down. Put yourself down. Grab onto God. Because he's worth it. If you're a Christian here, you know that. You know that our God is worthy and he's worth clinging to versus us clinging to what we think makes us happy, right? He's worthy of that. So grab onto him instead. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you find what's good? How do you determine what's good? It doesn't come from here. It doesn't come from your feelings or from within. It comes from God and from his word. Dive into that and find out for yourself what's best for you. And I'm going to tell you 100% of the time, it's going to be what God has said. And you may not like it at first. You may hate God for it at first. But pray and ask him to reveal himself to you, then he'll show you his goodness. Because again, last point, God is better. He's not just worthy. He's better than what you think you have. It won't be easy. If you are here under the sound of my voice and this is a struggle that you have, if you are battling this with your children, if this is something they're struggling with, maybe your kids, maybe, maybe especially teenagers, if you have a friend at school, and I guarantee you do now, because again, it's one in five. Statistically, you, one of your five friends is struggling with this right now. You have to understand, this is not easy. You'll ba- they'll battle this and you'll battle this daily. Some days you're going to wish that you had companionship of the same sex, if that's what you're battling. You'll long to satisfy your flesh. You will. Because again, there's no easy solution for this, unless there's a miracle that happens. And pray that God does that for you. I pray that God does that for you. But in general, most people struggle with this for the rest of their life. They do. Jackie O'Perry didn't. She went on to marry and have a a healthy marriage. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, same thing. She had these, uh, these uh, same-sex tendencies, never felt like she could pursue them because of her religious background, ended up fighting against them, and then ended up being married. So it does happen. But you have to understand that you will struggle with this forever. You will. Because, and the reason I know that is because I, as a heterosexual male, struggle with adultery and lust every day. And all of you out there, you do as well, right? Of course you do. Because we are sinful. And until we are taken to glory, until Christ returns, we will struggle. You have to know, and the only way to fight that is to know that God is better. That he's better than what you want right now. And man, we're such a microwave culture, right? We want things in three minutes or less, right? And we're so tempted to just reach out and grab what makes us feel good. The only thing that will stop that in your life is if you know that God is better than what you want to reach out to grab. It's the only way. And if you don't preach that to yourself, you'll forget. He's better. No matter what it is, he will bring more satisfaction than whatever it is that you struggle with or think that what is best for you is better. He's better than whatever it may be. And then the objection, of course, is that I want to be happy. But why would God ruin my happiness and the good feelings I get from what I'm doing? And here's what you need to understand. God's not trying to ruin your happiness. He's trying to save you from eternal torment in the lake of fire. He's trying to save you from yourself. Because again, our hearts are wicked and evil. And they do not know what's best for us. And you have to understand this as well. When Christ sacrificed sacrificed himself for us, he knew in that sacrifice nothing would be more satisfying than that for us. He knew that. When Christ died, he knew that this, listen, any measure of happiness in this moment of, of life, any measurement, I don't care how long it lasts, whether it's for a year or for 10 years or for 90 years or for a second, any measurement of happiness on this side of eternity will not measure to a millisecond in Christ's presence. It can't. And it will not measure to a millisecond of being separated from him for eternity. He's better. 
One second with God, we sang the song, right? One second with God will be better than an endless amount of happiness here. We have to remind ourselves of that. Christ knew that when he died for us. That is why he died for us, so that we could be with him, so that we could be in his presence. Knowing him, being in his presence, man, our first second with him in eternity will be bliss compared to what we've sacrificed by staying holy and pure according to what his word has said. Those sacrifices that we will have to make to not sin, to, to not follow our earthly desires, our inward desires, it will all be worth it. That first glimpse of glory. It will be. So you've got to have that mindset. You've got to have that reality in your brain and in your heart. Otherwise, all sin will look delicious. It will. It'll look delicious. It'll look good. It'll look like the best thing ever. And you will never consider God's supremacy and his worth. You'll never see his betterment. And understand, you will never get there if you've never put your full faith and trust in Christ. So as I end my sermon and the band comes up, just as I close this out, is Christianity homophobic? The question is, what do you mean by that? If you mean, do Christians promote what God says is wrong? The answer is, we better not. There are those who will. But I can speak for Genesis, we will not. We will not, we will not say we are for something God is against. What we will tell you is, is that there's something better. That there's a better thing out there for you than this. That Christ is better and sacrificing your desires is better than what you think you want. So if this is something you're struggling with, I pray for you. I know it's hard. For those of you who have friends and neighbors who are struggling, understand this. They're, the solution for them is the finished work of Christ on the cross for their sins. That is what you must preach to them. That is what you must tell them. Be their family. Love them. Be their friend. Bring them in. Invite them to dinner. Have discussions like this. Don't push them out. Because that's what homophobia is. It's saying they're other. Get them out of here. Oh, no, church. We have the answer for eternal life. We have the answer for something that's better than giving in to self. Invite them into that. And let's share the gospel with them. Let's pray. Lord, I know that there are many under the sound of my voice who are, at least have a friend or at least are struggling with this. And Lord, we are for them. We're for them hearing the truth. We're for them hearing the gospel, the finished work of Christ on the cross for their sins. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here struggling with this, if there's anyone here who has a friend struggling with this, Lord, I pray for them. I pray that they'd come to know you in the full work of your salvation on the cross. And Lord, I pray that as we worship you now, let us remember how good and worthy you are, how much better you are than anything on this earth. In Jesus' name. Amen.